Christ, you know that he is adequate to save, and Hebrews says he saves to the uttermost. Uh, anyone who's in, in Christ is not only a new creation, but is saved and saved forever. That's the place to be. Let's pray, and we'll get into Scripture. Father, thanks that your Spirit is always present as two or three gather in your name, and we pray according to Jesus' will that you would edify the body of Christ and you'd glorify yourself as we read from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, I want to start on a depressing note. You laugh, and we're going to go downhill from there, seriously. So, uh, But it's for a point. Uh, in all seriousness, this is a lengthy passage we're going to be in this morning. It's a difficult passage because of its focus. So starting out, James Warren Jones, better known as Jim Jones, led the murder-suicide of almost a thousand people in Jonestown, Guyana, that's South America, in November 1978. Uh, many of you won't remember this. Uh, some of you lived through this would remember this in the headlines. Before the 9-11 attacks, this was the largest single intentional killing and death of American civilians in U.S. history, Jonestown. It wasn't on U.S. soil, it was in South America, but these were all U.S. citizens. A little bit of background on Jim Jones. He was born in 1931 in poverty, but he was a very intelligent young man. He was a voracious reader, grew up in Indiana. As he grew Though he went to church, his primary reading was Stalin, Marx, Mao, Gandhi, and Hitler. He would later use religion as a means to introduce his version of primarily of communism into the United States. As a young, committed communist, he was given his first church job, hired as a student pastor at a Methodist church in 1952. In 1956, with faith healer William Branham headlining, he started his own sham healing ministry in his own church, which eventually became known as the People's Temple. He moved from Indiana in the Midwest to the West Coast, California, where he was hailed broadly, early on at least, for his focus on reversing racism. This was before his darker side became more evident. Jones would later claim to have fathered at least two children from women he wasn't married to. He confessed to having numerous trysts with both men and women. So he had, he had grown up going to church, Christian churches. He had served in a Christian denomination, and he had used Christ and the Christian religion at least early on. By the 1970s, he called Christianity a, quote, flyaway religion. He denounced the Bible and its, quote, sky God as no God at all. He told his followers he would be whatever they needed, their friend, their father, their savior, and their God. He said, quote, you're going to help yourself or you'll get no help. There's only one hope of glory, that's within you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. This, of course, in reference to 2 Peter 3, those who would deny Jesus would return there's no, there's no one coming out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. Of course, that was always the communist mantra, heaven on earth by our own doing. His version of heaven on earth was the commune he built in Guyana, South America, aptly called, of course, Jonestown. Now, when they had settled down there, when his group had settled down there, charges of abuse were making their way back to the states, to the families 
who had family members down there, families were hearing these, these uh, accusations, and they raised the cry on that. So in uh, 78, U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan visited Jonestown to look into those allegations. So he had visited the commune. He was going back to the airfield when he and four others in his entourage were murdered. They were gunned down before the plane could take off. It was then that Jones led in having over 900 of his followers, including 300 children, drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. So when we say derisively someone drank the Kool-Aid, that's where that comes from. They drank the Kool-Aid. They followed Jim Jones. When you look back on Jones and the People's Temple and their ultimate end, there's almost always this sense of incredulity. How could that ever have happened? And who, who in their right mind would have followed this guy? But you know, it's not just Jim Jones. You think this is just in the last several decades. The Heaven's Gate cult, they all committed suicide simultaneously because the planets were in alignment and, and the mothership was over the earth and they were going to rise to meet her. Or if you think of Branch Davidian and David Koresh, charismatic personas will always find an audience. And it's because people are needy and people are looking for help. And there are people that are out there that are willing to take advantage of them. People in pain look for pain relief. And guys, just as there's a market for sham health aids, there is always a market for sham prophets and teachers. The world is always ripe for more Jim Joneses. What you find is, in part at least this, sometimes the most dangerous of places are those that should be the safest so many of you know, especially those who've gone through our Ministry Safe program, you know that statistically at least a third of families in the United States have been affected by some form of abuse of minors. At least a third. And that's true in Lion Lamb Church. It's a given, roughly. And you also know that of those children who get abused, the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority, are not abused by strangers they're abused by their family members and their friends. That is, you think of home and family should be the place I'm safe. You know, I'm safe from all the, the strangers. It's not strangers who are doing most of the abusing. It's family members and friends. Churches have become places that make the news not because of their good works, but because of the abuse of those in them. This has come up big time in the last several years. Now, on one level, we're surprised when we hear it or perhaps who it was or where it was, but we shouldn't surprise that this occurs. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing, that there are going to be those who come and they give you a particular appearance, but it's so that what they can get from you. Dangers walk the halls of homes and schools and churches and there are a thousand dangers lurking in places we thought were safe. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, that's because mankind is desperately wicked and capable of great evil. That's always been true since the fall. It remains true today. It's also because the God of this world, Martin Luther called him the Prince of Darkness Grim, still exercises great control and influence in this time and place. That's been going on right through the age of the church. This depressing introduction is to the Be Diligent series, their study in 2 Peter. And Peter, we get into chapter 2 this morning, we're shifting gears dramatically. When we looked at 2 Peter 1, when that chapter wound down, 
Peter was selling the legitimacy of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. And he said you can count on their words, their, their true words, you can stake your life on them, and in part that Jesus was going to return. Well, now he's shifting from that focus. The guys you could count on, the testimony of God given by those two groups, prophets and apostles, and he's turning to a group of guys. He says, don't believe these guys. Don't believe them ever. So we're making a very, very decided transition from those who were trustworthy to those who are not. And I say on the outset, this is a lengthy passage, and I'll go a little long. You should see your faces right now. I'm going just a little, I just warn you so that I, it's off my chest and I ask you to bear with me. Uh, also, if you've read Jude, you'll know that 2 Peter 2 and Jude bear great similarity. Their descriptions are almost the same, not quite, but almost the same. It goes back to that question, did Jude borrow from Peter? Did Peter borrow from Jude? At the end of the day, we say we don't know. We, we sort of don't care. They're both apostles. They spoke with apostolic authority and they're both writing God's word. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to read from the ESV, 2 Peter 2. Uh, we're going to take verses 1 through 3 and 10 through 22. We're skipping those verses in between because we'll take them up next time. They, they bring in a different element or theme related to these false teachers. So we're contrasting the credible prophets and apostles to people that we don't want to follow. False prophets, in contrast, false prophets also arose among the people during the time of the Old Testament, just as there will be, so past tense, false prophets, future tense, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Heresies are uh, missing the mark, an error on some foundational element of the faith, big rocks. They'll bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many, now notice that, it's not a few. We're not surprised when these guys get an audience. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Shift down to verse 10. Peter's referring especially to those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. These, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children... Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Read Numbers 22 through 24 if you're not familiar with that story. Peter is referencing back to a well-known story in Numbers. 
Verse 17, these are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So long passage, crazy long list of descriptions of these false teachers. We're going to break this down a couple ways. First, we'll look at what the text said they are. What are they? What are they? How are they described objectively in and of themselves? We'll then go to what they do. That's the longer list. And then we'll wind down by looking at uh, the contrast to them. So, uh, guys, it is long, and uh, I hope you have a pen and a study sheet so you can focus, because we're going to take most, not all, but most of the key descriptions and talk about them at least briefly. The first one is that they are false teachers. Uh, in the Greek, it's pseudo. They are pseudo-teachers. They pretend to be teachers in the church, but they're not. That's not what, they're not from God to begin with, but they're not gifted as teachers. They are pseudo-teachers. They are lying teachers. They pretend to represent Christ, but they don't. Go all the way down to verse 10, bold and willful. This means reckless and stubborn in pursuing whatever they're after. They're willing to take risks to get what they want, and they're persistent. When I think of this, if I sit on my patio and a fly is buzzing me, I smack at the fly. And you know what the fly is? He's persistent. Even though he one swat, if I hit him, he's done. But he's persistent. He keeps coming after me, and I keep trying to swat him down. These guys are like those flies. They're willing to take great risks to pursue what they're after. In fact, isn't that something you see occasionally in people? A boldness that you just think you're crazy. But, but that's reflected out of this. They're bold and willful. Verse 12 they're like irrational animals, creatures of instinct. They're less spiritually minded, less like the angels and more like the beasts. And you've got to love the irony here. So, Peter says these pseudo-teachers become more like animals than men. And even a dumb animal, this is why he, bring, he brings up the donkey in Naaman's story. And, uh, so, uh, Balaam's story. So do you remember the story? The seer, the Gentile prophet Balaam, who sees what others can't see, he's blind to the angel in front of him, but who sees the angel? The donkey sees the angel. And who ends up, when he's not sure what to say is true and what isn't true, who speaks the truth in Balaam's story? The donkey speaks the truth in Balaam's story, not the prophet. So there's this intentional irony. These guys are like Balaam. They're less human than animal. They don't see truth like Balaam couldn't see truth. They're dumber than a donkey. In fact, Peter's almost saying, these guys give donkeys and animals a bad name. They're, 
they're degrading. They're going down. Of course, where the passage ends, they're going down to their true beastly nature. Verse 13, they are, and guys, this is, uh, so this is what keeps me going through this list. So, so many of the descriptions, they're so compelling because you can see them. Uh, verse 13, they are blots and blemishes. They are blots and blemishes. So, you know, if you read in Revelation, the saints that are holy in Christ, they're always described as being dressed in white linen that represents the righteousness or the righteous deeds of the saints. These guys are like these crude fellows that show up at your feast and they eat to excess and they're sloppy. The Greek word means spills. It's like they spilled the wine, you know, they ate with their hands and then they wiped their hands on their clothing. That's what these guys look like. They are blots and blemishes when they eat and drink. Verse 14 says they're accursed children. You know, Ephesians 2, Paul says that all of us are born in sin, separated from God, and because of that, he says there, we're children of wrath. Through only our natural birth, the appropriate end for us before God is God's wrath because of our separation from the holy and true God. These guys, though, are a step further. They're, they're like children that not only were born under wrath, but that have additionally earned God's curse. It's almost like they're doubly dead. In fact, I think doubly dead is one of the phrases out of Jude. Verse 17, again, great rich imagery. They are waterless springs. They are mists driven by a storm. Now put yourself where these texts, and he's writing to folks in Turkey, the weather might be a little different. But if you were a Middle Easterner writing this or reading about this, you don't count on the rains necessarily. You're in a dry region of earth. And they use wells and springs. And you look for the rains, the wells and springs. So that's life-giving. So he says they are waterless springs. So I need a drink of water. I'm dying of thirst. I'm in the desert. And I go up the wadi and I'm looking for the spring that should be gushing water. Lots of these in modern-day Israel, less, they gush less than they used to. But you'd say, I'm going to the spring. I'll get that life-giving water. I'll get a drink. And there's nothing there. It's dry. Or I'm going to go to the well where there's water. I go to the well. The well is dry. Well, that's what these guys are like. Now, remember, Peter heard Jesus in John 7 say, everyone that believes in me, they're going to become like a person who has a spring of water within them. And the text tells us now he was referring to the Holy Spirit that had not yet been given because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. But he says believers have what's like a spiritual life force, a spring of water within them that you can't contain, that springs up and over out of you. These guys have no spring water to give. They're a lie. It's like they're supposed to be a spring, but they can't give you any water. They're a dry well. And also where it says they are misdriven by the storm. So if, if you want your garden to grow or if you want the grass to grow or anything else, you look for the rains. Or if you're a farmer, you're looking for the rains to come at the right time. But you know, if you get up in the morning, there's a little fog above Shunga Creek, it's not doing my garden any good. If I feel a little moisture in the morning, that, that dew on the, the heavy moisture we get in the Midwest, it's not watering the ground. It's not moisture like the rain that soaks in and makes things grow. 
it is in that sense, it's a lie, it's a fabrication. It's an indication that more is coming and more never comes. That's what these guys are like. There's no water and there's no rain. They've got nothing to give that promotes life. Verse 19 says, they themselves are slaves of corruption. He says, they promise others the very thing they themselves don't have. He says, they're enslaved to their own sinful desires. Now, the text says, by whatever you submit to, that's your master. And this whole notion of freedom or slavery, especially in the New Testament, is, is tied to spiritual freedom. So we can say of each other, we can say of folks who don't know Christ, we can say they're free to do what they want, but they're not necessarily free to do what they ought. They can do what they want, but they can't do what they ought because sin confines them, constrains them. Jesus says, the New Testament affirms, that when you sin, sin is your master. When I choose to sin, sin is my master because it's the thing I'm submitting to. Well, that's all these guys know how to do. So the freedom they promise others is only, in reality, it's the freedom they have to sin and become further and further debased. They're promising people something they themselves don't have, not in reality at least. In verse 22, they're like, Peter says, the dog that returns to its own vomit. Let's, let's linger on this. <laughs> don't skip over this. Have you guys had dogs? You, you guys see what dogs lick? Where they put their nose? Have you seen a dog vomit? This is gross, isn't it? This is Sunday morning at church. You've got to be kidding me. No, that's, that's the point, isn't it? You watch your dog, then they throw up, they put their nose down, they smell it, and they eat it right back up because they're a dog. And you and I are like, that's gross. And we say, yeah, that is gross, and that would be the point. It's gross. He also says, like a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. I say this as a bacon-loving man. I have nothing against pigs, nothing against sows. But the point here is, Take a pig out of the barnyard, out of the farmyard, out of the sty, and you clean them up for the county fair. That pig looks really as good as a pig can look, right? But if you turn them loose again, what are they going to do? And this is because of the way God made them, right? I don't blame the pig for wanting to stay cool. I don't blame the pig for wanting some water and some mud to cool my skin down and protect my skin from the sun. This isn't blaming pigs for anything, guys. But it's that the pig's nature, it doesn't matter how often you wash them off, they're going to want to get back in the mud. So his point here is, these guys have always been a dog, and they're still a dog. These guys, remember the, the thought of they're beastly, they're more animal than angel or spiritual. So he closes this text on that thought, they're like animals. And they're like the pig that's always true to its nature, always wants to go back to that mud hole and cool down. That feels good. Again, we're not demoting pigs. We're saying these guys' nature has remained unchanged, absolutely unchanged. They've never been born again. I want to be clear on this through repentance and faith in Jesus. You can see similar passages to this. There's a phrase that says they deny the master that bought them. That is not salvation, uh, Paul talks about, and it, I think it's in 1 Timothy, he talks about Jesus paid the ransom. It's as if on one hand, Jesus is the Savior of the world, 
potentially everybody lives under the atoning work of Jesus, but it's not applied to everyone. So Jesus is still the master in that sense that redeemed them, that paid for them, but they don't have the benefit of the atonement. They were never Christ. So I want to be clear on that. I think your study sheet has some references. Hebrews 6, 1 John 3, and James 2 talk about people who have enjoyed a temporary sanctifying effect because they've gone along. They went to church for a while. They quit smoking or drinking or whatever their sin challenge was for a while. But because there was no conversion, they went back to the life they had before that temporary change of address, if you will. Remember, the Pharisees in Jesus' day were unconverted. You can sin and look like a saint, or you can sin and look like a pagan, and you're a sinner in the same, you're just still a sinner if you're not converted, if you haven't trusted Christ for forgiveness. So these guys are pretenders, slaves of sin, false, more beastly than spiritual. So that's what they are. So what do they do? Peter tells us what they do. Look at verse 1 again. They bring in destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them. Guys, every cult, every religious claim touching Jesus that short of the gospel denies either the person of Jesus, full God and full man, the incarnation. That's the same language out of First John. They deny that Jesus came in the flesh, that God the Son took on our flesh, that he's really God and really man. They deny either the person of Jesus or they deny the work of Jesus or both. And the work of Jesus is what we would say is the gospel. So they deny that Jesus' work on the cross, his death, his, his resurrection was adequate to save me. They add something to we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. There's always an addition. And this is rampant. This is rampant. I don't know what kind of churches you guys grew up in. I was Roman Catholic, you know that. Ask a Roman Catholic, how do you get to heaven? Live a good life, be a good person. That's not the gospel. Ask a Methodist, how do you get to heaven? More than not, live a good life, be a good person. That's not the gospel. That form of salvation, Buddhists believe, Hindus believe, Taoists believe, Muslims believe. That's not the gospel. It doesn't save. So these groups, these teachers always get one or the other or both wrong. The person of Jesus or the work of Jesus, it's always the same. You can count on it. Uh, think today, false Christian, Christian Religious groups, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and others get the person of Jesus wrong. Others get the work of Jesus wrong. So they bring in destructive heresies. And I want to point out here, so when we say uh, what they do, uh, the teaching is really short. That's as much as it says. These guys aren't about doctrine. You know, if you look in churches and cults, uh, the motivation of the people involved determines what they're doing. So if you go to Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses can be fine neighbors and moral people and people that you trust your kids with or your spouse with or your business with, you know what I'm saying, upstanding people. Hindus, Buddhists, absolutely. Be, be, there, there's a motivation. I know the right thing to do. I'm trying to do the right thing sort of thing, that sort of motivation. That's not who these guys are. So when Peter tells us what they do, his list on what they say is that long. His list on what they do is this long. 
it's because they're animalistically driven by their own sensual desires. That's where they live. That's what they're after. It's what they can personally get, sort of creatures of the flesh, beastly people. That's what they're after. So verse 1, they bring in heresies. The doctrine part's over. The rest is their lifestyle. Verse 2, their sensuality. They bring disrepute to the truth. Truth is blasphemed because of them. What they're really, really after are the pleasures of the flesh with no restraint. We want to be quick to add, Scripture's absolutely clear. Uh, God created sex. God created tasty food. All the things you and I can enjoy in life, God created them, and he created us to enjoy them. The difference here is, and we don't want to lose sight of that, because otherwise you just become a legalist. The point here is this is all these guys want. It's all they're after. The, the pleasures that you can derive as a human on earth has become their God. It's the only thing they're pursuing. So it's not that any of us should give up enjoying the good things God's given us to enjoy. It's that we enjoy them under the lordship of Christ. We enjoy the things God gave us, the way he gave us, and the, ma the manner in which he meant us to enjoy them. We don't say we enjoy life less. We just don't make those enjoyments our passion or our drive. Verse 3 says their greed, their lust, their avarice, and, and out of their greed it says they exploit you. These guys are not about serving other people. They're about using people for their own ends. It says they exploit you. So when they come up with a smile and a handshake and whatever it is they're saying, as if they're your friend and they'd love to help you, they don't want to help you. They're just after whatever they can get from you. Revelation 18:13 in in part describing Babylon the Great. So Babylon the Great is the mother of harlots of religious prostitution of of a religious replacement for Jesus true church. And one of the descriptions of Babylon the Great is Babylon the Great has a cup and the cup is filled with blood. Cuz Babylon the Great has been living on the lives of the people it's been abusing. And in verse 13 of chapter 18, it says, Babylon the Great is, is typified by buying and selling, among other things, it says, trading in the souls of men. That Babylon the Great has been selling people. Babylon the Great has never been trying to help anyone. Babylon, false religion, was always consuming People. That's why the cup she has has blood. Blood is the indication of life. This, this prostitute, this harlot, this false church was always about what it could get, not what it could give. Well, guys, that's what these guys do. Their greed causes them to pursue you for what they can get from you. And let me say this, and this is not quite an aside. As technology becomes more and more the guiding influence in life, it's no wonder that its priests, leaders in groups like Google and Facebook and others, resemble Babylon the Great in their monetizing people through the collection and sale of every facet of your life. These people are trading in the souls of men. And guys, 20, 30 years ago, you could read in prominent magazines that the new priesthood were the scientists. Scientists put, 
put guys on the mood. Scientists were creating, you know, the latest, greatest pharmaceutical miracle. Scientists were, they, the, the headlines were the new priesthood. Well, guys, the new priesthood are the technocrats today. And the folks heading up these social, whatever, social media platforms, they're selling you. You are their product. And this is not an ad for iPhones. I'll probably end up getting rid of my iPhone. But we had Android phones. And I loved my Android phone. But you know what? I hated Google. I still hate Google. I don't use Google search engine. I don't use Google phones. You know why? Because the underhanded way they steal by hook or by crook every facet of your life they can collect because they're selling it. Because all this billions of dollars is coming from the information you give them willingly or unwillingly because they're selling you. This is the same thing that Babylon the Great's done. Only now it's in the technology department we think it's okay. It's not okay. It's illicit. So be careful. Don't, I don't say buy an iPhone because I'll probably end up getting rid of that too. But that's what they're doing. Uh, Ephesians 4.19 says of unsaved Gentiles, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the thought here. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And they do so with false words. They do so with false words. It's interesting here in the Greek, it's not pseudo words. The Greek is plastos. Can you guess what English word comes from the Greek plastos? Plastic. It's the thought. It's what's malleable. It's what can be formed. It's what can be fabricated. So these guys are just working at fabricating whatever it is that you're willing to swallow. That's what they're going to say. They're fabricating their words to deceive you and to take you in. Verse 10 says they have defiling passions. This comes from a Greek word that means stain or pollution. If you said to somebody, I ran into a, a I think I'll get this word, a, a miasm or a miasmus, it's a stinky pit of something. And that's what the Greek word comes from. This is the same thought. It's this defiling stench. The passions of these men lead to moral pollution. Verse 10 also says they despise authority. That No one is going to tell these guys what to do. They despise authority. They're like Satan in that regard. Um, Isaiah 14, you know, I'm going to rise above the mountains of the north. I'm going to take my place as if I myself am God, meaning nobody's over me. Nobody tells me what to do. I am my own God. You guys remember the poem Invictus? written about a hundred years ago by a British poet. The, the line most people know is, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And if you read that poem, you realize it's absolutely written against Christ and the gospel. Absolutely written against Christ and the gospel, Invictus. Verse 12, they blaspheme the glorious ones. In context there in verse 12, it appears to be that they're blaspheming angels. And I don't know exactly what the context of this would look like, but they're speaking evil of angels. In one way or another, they're despising some entity that appears to have moral excellence. You know, the more I give myself to do evil, the more I mock those who are trying to do the right thing. And that's the thought here. Those, those, those cool angels, that are, they're all righteous and all that. They, they mock they mock angels. Verse 13, uh, they revel in the daytime. They revel in deception. They're so, it means they're self-indulgent 
any time of day and night. And it, this, is, uh, this says something about them. They delight in their own cunning and deception. So th- think of the, these guys this way. So they want something from you. So that's what they're after. They want something from you. Let's say it's money or it's sex or whatever it is. They want something from you. And so they, that's what they're after and that's what they're going to get. Well, on one hand, they take delight in getting from you what they want. But on the other hand, they delight in getting it by lying to you. They're as delighted in their deception as they are in what they get. They delight. They like tricking you and knowing they got over. They were smarter than you. You're not as clever as them. There's just pride fueling all of this. But they're delighting as much as how they get what they get. Uh, Verse 14 says their eyes are full of adultery. It actually says their eyes are full of adulteresses. Not adultery, adulteresses. So the thought would be this. Every woman this guy sees is somebody he's thinking about sleeping with, committing immorality with. Every woman he beholds, he treats her as an adulteress, that that woman is there for me. And you look at Jim Jones' life, and that was certainly prevalent in his life and others like him. But it's not just I'm thinking about something. Every woman I see is a potential partner with me in immorality insatiable for sin in that same context. C.S. Lewis uh, described, maybe not defined, but described lust in, to me, one of the most uh, lucid and clear ways I've ever heard. Lust is an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing return. So the people given to sin are insatiable because it doesn't matter how much I get, it's never satisfying You know, the more you give yourself to sin, the more you're enslaved by the sin, but the less satisfaction you get. And that's what's going on for them. They'll never get enough because sin never satisfies. They entice unsteady souls. Uh, Listen to this from Tyndale Commentary. They seduce the unstable. The metaphor is from fishing and recurs in verse 18. uh, The Greek term means to catch with bait. And who wrote this? Peter, the former fisherman so he says that what they're doing is when they lie to you and when they're pursuing their greed they're doing so craftily and whatever they say to you it's bait they're trying to figure out what this what motivates this person and so this is the bait i will put out for you so they're on a fishing expedition and you're the prize they're looking for if you think of a a passage in scripture like proverbs 1 Right out of the gate, when Dad in Proverbs is warning Junior about the wrong kind of people, he says, Junior, if these guys come up to you, and then this is what they say, hey, come in with us, we're going to throttle these guys, we'll steal this money, we'll have all this fun, we'll have all this money, and Dad's like, Junior, don't do it. The bait is, you're going to get all this money, you'll be free to do whatever you want. And Dad's saying, Junior, don't do it. That's the bait. But you're going to lose your life. You go to Proverbs 8, you see the same thing. The woman folly who cannot give you wisdom or life says, come to my house, we'll have a great time, and I've got a feast set for us. We're good to go. That's the bait. But it says everyone who goes to her house, guess what happens to every one of them? They all die. So that's the thought here. You're being baited by someone who's very clever at reading people to see what motivates you, and that's the appeal I will make to you. I'm fishing for souls. 
says also in that same verse, hearts trained in greed. Again, the descriptions of this are what helps keep me motivated as you study, because I know it's a long list. Trained in greed is these guys, so if some of you in here, you work out. And so that means you intentionally run, or you intentionally go to the gym, and, and you're lifting weights. Well, the word used here for train is like, I'm going to the gym. I'm working out. Which is to say, these guys are training themselves to be as deceptive as possible. They're working at it like you go to the gym and pump iron to make those muscles bigger. That's what they're doing, pursuing a means of manipulating you. They are working at it. Verse 15, forsaking the right way. They've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam. Talked about that a little bit. Just encourage you to read the story if you haven't. Verse 18, speaking loud boasts of folly. They're loud but it's folly. They entice by sensual passions those who barely are escaping. I think of two alcoholics headed to their AA meeting when I think this, and one says to the other, let's forget the meeting, let's go hit the bar or the liquor store instead. You, know, you got somebody's trying to crawl out the pit of a habit they want to escape from, and the other one's saying, no, 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 come back, we'll enjoy this together. That's what they're doing. Verse 19, they promise other freedoms. We've mentioned this, but they pr they're promising what they themselves don't have. Deep breath. Okay. The world is full of false teachers today, some who claim to speak for God and some who don't, but who are still claiming to speak the truth. So today, from those peddling critical race theory, the acceptability of gay marriage, LGBT lifestyles to those who say Jesus is less than God or less than an adequate Savior. We live in perilous times with false teachers and false claims abounding. And we say this within the professing church. We say, remember, these guys are starting in the church. This, this isn't a warning to Gentiles and people outside the household of faith. It's a warning to people who follow Christ, who claim Christ. Now, how do we see these guys for what they are early? How do we see it early? Uh, point three on your study sheet, the tell test and the smell test. We'll start with the tell test. Uh, what does the teacher say about affirming the Scriptures as the Word of God? What do they say about their source of truth? What's true? What's my appeal to truth? On what basis do I tell you what I tell you? Does this person say, the 66 books of the Bible are the word of God spoken. They're perfect. They're adequate for everything we need because that's what they claim for themselves. What do they say about the Bible? Do they teach from the Bible? Do they teach accurately from the Bible? And second, do they affirm the person and work of Jesus Christ? Jesus is God incarnate on the earth and salvation is by God's grace through faith in Christ. Period. So, do they affirm the source of truth, God's word? Do they affirm the person work of Jesus Christ? That is, does the person pass the tell test? What are they telling us? What are they telling us? Occasionally, someone will come to Lion and Lamb, and they'll say, I looked at your statement of belief online, and I say, great, because that's why it's there. If you were visiting a church, if, if God's will, you end up moving to another state or city, you got to find a new home church, and you start looking around, the place you start is, what do they say? What do they tell me? If they're not 
If they're not orthodox on those big rocks, we don't go any further. We don't need to go any further. If it's a church that's not speaking from God's word as the authority, don't bother. You're, we're done. If we get past that, we end up with the smell test. That's 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 17. Paul said, we're an aroma of Christ. It's a really rich uh, passage in Scripture. It's rich imagery, which we won't go into. But Paul says it's as if we give off, we Christians, we give off an aroma of Jesus. And he says in that setting, to some people, because that's the truth, we smell good. Because they know what Jesus smells like, and they know what salvation's about. And we, we remind them of Christ, and that's an encouragement. But he says to other people, we, we stink because they don't want Christ. They've rejected Christ, and we smell like Christ, and therefore life, they're not interested. But the thought is there's this sense, on one hand, in a chapter later, he says you're a letter, people can read you. Here he says they can smell you. Do they pass the smell test? Now, part of this is subjective, I'll grant you. But have you guys ever had an, an experience where you've met someone, maybe you've interacted with them a little bit, and you go away and you say to yourself, something's wrong. Something about that person that I can't put my finger on just yet, something about that person is wrong. I can feel it. I sense it. Now, sometimes you'll see someone, we were in the park a week or two ago, and I saw this guy, and I thought, I should just go up and say, hi, I'm Mike. I think he's a Christian. You know, it turns out he's a Christian. And that's just the Holy Spirit. That's subjective, and, but that's part of the smell test. Do they smell like Christ or not? Uh, but also, you remember in chapter 1, Peter's already told us, what does Christ's life in us look like? And you remember he said, to faith we add virtue, you know, moral excellence, and then we add knowledge and we had self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love so does the person in their their life as far as you can see and this gets beyond by the way public appearances you know we can put on a good face here on sunday morning right and then go home and it's a different person and at this level i'm talking about you're seeing the person for what they really are not for the short facade that they may put on briefly what are they at home that's one of the reasons, by the way, why it's so helpful to spend time in each other's homes because you see people as they really are. Nobody can maintain a facade very long. Uh, do they look like those Christ-like virtues in 2 Peter 1? Or if you read Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is description of the life of Christ within us. Is that what you see? Do they have love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? As you get to know them, no one's perfect, by the way, but as you get to know them, is it Christ-like qualities you see in them? The smell test, is that what you're seeing? Jesus said, check the fruit. This is Matthew 7 again out of the Sermon on the Mount. Beware there, he says, of false prophets. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing. That's the the outward appearance they're presenting, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Healthy trees bear good fruit. Diseased tree bears bad fruit. You will recognize them by their fruits. You'll recognize them by the way they live. I want to say something real brief. This is a little, uh, a little to the side, I suppose. Um. I read an article yesterday that was describing fallout in pastors and churches around the country in the last several years. 
and uh, I was in full agreement in what the writer was saying, and it was this. So I went to this church, and there was this uh, charismatic, well-known pastor, and everything he taught was orthodox. And you say, so far, so good, great. But then what you found out later as life went on, they aren't what they say. They don't do what they preach. And guys, there have been at least three, I don't have to scratch my head, there's three prominent pastors that have fallen within the last few years, and this is what came out. They were sexually immoral, and the ones that weren't were abusive of other people. They weren't Christ in their leadership role, though they proclaimed orthodox teaching. So you could still see someone who, who says the right things, who proclaims orthodox teaching, but who doesn't live it like Christ. And we're saying on either way, be careful. There was a guy, I kid you not, I heard at a conference in Mississippi, I think, probably 20, 25 years ago. This was one of the headline speakers. I didn't know him at the time. I'd never heard of him. And I listened to him, and I just thought, this is one of the most arrogant men I've ever heard. He's headlining a biblical counseling conference. But you know what? 20, 30 years later, he was fired because what, what I could smell as a guy hearing him for the first time eventually came home to roost at his Chicago church, his Chicago mega church. And they said, this guy's been abusive of people forever. So if we get past the tell test, the smell test still should inform us about how do they live, how do they treat other people. Peter gives, and I'm winding down here. Maybe I should go longer. I feel like I warned you and I haven't gone long enough. I don't know, to justify the warning. Pete gives a brief description of what the call to teach and shepherd in Jesus' church looks like in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. We'll wind down on this. He said there, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, so a fellow shepherd, an overseer, a pastor in the church, shepherd, that same word is translated pastor, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, your leadership responsibility in that church, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Now the thought here is this, and it goes hand in hand with Acts 20. In Acts 20, Paul said to a group of elders, the Holy Spirit made you overseers. The Holy Spirit gave you this job to do. And Peter here says, if God's called you to be an elder, to be a shepherd, to be a pastor in the local flock, he says, do it willingly, not because I have to, like, oh, great. This is what I have to do. I'm saddled with this group of people. He says, no, do so willingly the way God wants you to. Enthusiastically, God's Christ has commissioned me with a role. I got to take it seriously. I got to give it my full heart, all my energies. That's what he says there in Peter. And then he says, not for shameful gain. Absolute opposite of the guys Peter's describing in chapter 2. Not for shameful, other translations say sordid gain, but eagerly, more for what you can give than what you can get. So eagerly, not for what you can get from those folks. And he says also, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Jesus is a gentle shepherd. You know, I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
if the shepherds and the pastors we're serving with or under, if they're not like that, we want to get out from underneath their care. Domineering is not a characteristic of Christ-like shepherding. So that's what it's supposed to be. And I'll just tell you, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I will just tell you, the, the elders and the deacons I know in Lion and Lamb take that passage seriously. That's what we want to do. And absolutely don't do it well at times, I'm sure, certainly imperfectly. But that's, that's the mantra under which we serve in Lion and Lamb Church. Why such a lengthy description, guys? Because we're not as smart as we think. Because we need this kind of warning. Because these wolves are around. We need a lengthy description. And by the way, as we read any of that, did, did any of that, did you wince or cringe at any of those descriptions? Because some of those I could read and say, uh, ouch, that sounds like what went through my mind yesterday or this morning on the way to church or whatever. This serves not just as a warning for other people. Guys, nobody starts as a full-blown heretic. You know, people don't start as a full-blown abuser. We grow into that role. So as I read this and as you read this, on one hand, we want to be aware of others outside that look like this. That's the primary importance. But when you read this and you see something and you say, ouch, that looks like something I've done, I thought, whatever, let it be the warning that it should be. Lord, I don't want to go down that road. I don't want to be that person. Cleanse me, forgive me, Lord, let Christ Rule and reign in me fully. Don't let me look like one of these guys, okay? Okay, if the worship team would come up, I want to close. You can stand. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. We'll read that together. Stand, stretch, yawn. 1 Peter 5. It's a great passage to wind down a warning text that we had this morning. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11. Let's read that together. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and 